0: The American Cinematographer podcast is a show about the art and craft of filmmaking. We take you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm joined by David Noble, ASC, who's here to talk about the aerial cinematography of Top Gun, Maverick. But first, the June 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now. The stills issue with a beautiful black-and-white cover by Antonio Calvace, ASC AEC. In it, you'll find a gallery of still photographs from ASC members with a special focus on people and places. This is an incredible collection of remarkable images, and it's exclusive to the print and digital editions. Claudio Miranda, ASC, and director Joseph Kaczynski talk about their work on the high-flying Top Gun Maverick, a sequel to the 1986 feature Top Gun with a special emphasis on capturing the actors engaged in authentic jet fighter maneuvers. This, along with David Knowles' interview, paints a pretty complete picture of what it took to bring American air supremacy to the big screen. You can find this story on our website, along with a reprint of our coverage of the original Top Gun, photographed by Jeffrey L. Kimball, ASC. Greg Fraser, ASC, ACS, winner of an ASC award, An Academy Award and BAFTA for his work on last year's science fiction epic, Dune, shares his experiences from past projects and collaborations, and offers an inside look at the photography of his most recent feature, The Batman. You can also read this story on our website. In The Man Behind the Glass, Panavision Lens Expert, ASC Associate, and inaugural recipient of the Curtis Clark ASC Technical Achievement Award, Dan Sazaki reflects on his impressive career Dan's done a number of interviews with the magazine over the years, and some of them are online, so we'll put links to this profile and those stories in the show notes. And in Clubhouse news, the ASC welcomes new member Ava Burkowski. Born in Wales and raised between London and California, Ava earned a BFA in photography from the School of Visual Arts in New York City, followed by an MFA in cinematography from the American Film Institute. Their narrative work includes Free Indeed, which earned them an Independent Spirit Award nomination. They've also received two Emmy nominations as well as an ASC Award nomination for their work on HBO's Insecure. Please note, Ava prefers they, them pronouns. Congratulations, Ava, and welcome. In other society news, The Cine Lens Manual, a comprehensive examination of the art and science of cinema optics co-authored by ASC associate Jay Holbin and Christopher Probst ASC, is hot off the press. It covers 140 years of cinema lens history, details 300 families of lenses, and contains 1,500 full-color photographs, diagrams, and graphics. The book is available for purchase at the ASC store at theasc.com. So lots of good stuff in the magazine, lots of good stuff online at our website, including Clubhouse Conversations, cinematographers you love, talking to cinematographers you love. The latest features Sean Kim speaking about his work on the final season of the Netflix series, Ozark. He's interviewed by James Whitaker, ASC. There are a lot more of these conversations on the website and there are more to come. You'll also find cinematographer profiles Flashback stories where we reprint articles from vintage issues, more podcasts, new products and services, and just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking at theasc.com. And now, it's time for the interview. One of the big selling points of Top Gun Maverick is that not only does a lot of this film take place in the sky, a lot of it was actually filmed there with the actors strapped into these F-A-18 Super Hornet fighter jets for all the big dogfight sequences. We go over that aspect in detail in the June 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine, modifying the jet cockpits to accept six Sony Venice cameras, as well as mounting the cameras to the exterior of the jet bodies. And we do touch on the air-to-air and ground-to-air cinematography with aerial coordinator Kevin LaRosa Jr., But we also wanted to go a bit deeper, which is why we're talking to the film's aerial cinematographer, David Nowell, ASC. Here's a quick bio. David attended what is now Loyola Marymount University Film School, before starting his career as a camera assistant in 1972. By the end of that year, he'd played a role in developing the Astro Vision camera platform for Continental Camera Systems, which led him to his first of more than 200 credits as an aerial cinematographer, including 1986's Top Gun. So you've definitely seen his work, and I'm very happy to have him with us. David, I read in your bio that uh, you have a passion for driving race cars, right? But it it seems like you spend most of your time in the air. What came first, an an interest in filmmaking or an interest in aviation?
1: Well, filmmaking really came first. I graduated from LMU out here with a degree in what they called communication arts at the time. It's before they had the film and video uh, department that they have now. I knew I wanted to get into the movie industry. I thought I wanted to get into camera. And it was really when I was working on uh, Woman Under the Influence with John Cassavetes that he allowed me to operate the camera. And as soon as I had my eye to the eyepiece, I went, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to be able to see that image and be able to basically control it, whether it's the operating or whatever type of thing. And that's what started that. But during that same period of time is when I was also working um, in between any other kind of projects with Continental Camera Systems. And they were building a new helicopter mount to rival Tyler camera systems back then. This is about 1972 or so. And they were the ones that gave me the first chance to start actually shooting stuff because there were two standards back then for aerial work. There was 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter. And 16 handled everything, news, sports, everything else. And uh, But a lot of times the other big DPs at the time wouldn't do 16 millimeter. So... When people would come to continental camera and say well we need to rent your equipment but we need somebody to shoot it i would get the chance through uh, john carroll to say well the kid can do it and that's where the chance came from so the uh, the passion for flying came later and the passion for flying has really been the fact that i just get the chance to do so much in so many diverse different type of aircraft it's been a wonderful career but Never to the point that I ever wanted to get a a pilot's license or really actually learn to fly. So it would bounce back and forth. I would do groundwork and aerial work, whatever, just all throughout the career.
0: I was going to say that I I saw you've worked with Tony Scott multiple times, as well as Tom Cruise and uh, Claudio Miranda and Joseph Kaczynski, all prior to your work on Top Gun Maverick. But with all of the credits you've accumulated over the past 50 years, you're bound to cross paths with the same people more than once. What's your secret to staying busy?
1: Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. Of course, lo- I was lucky enough to have met Tony on the first Top Gun. And then we just hit it off. He saw what I could do. I kind of got a pretty good understanding of the type of work he was looking for. And so we, we did everything together all the way up until... Um, We lost Tony, but uh, did all of his commercials and all of his features type of thing. So we just hit it off. But I think part of it, when looking back on it, is just having the confidence in myself, number one, of what I could do. And I knew I could do it no matter what the project would be. And then just being able to, you know, not sell that, but just the fact that people had confidence in me. So a lot of it was, I think, of uh, being able to do the job, do it with passion, and then some. Yeah, because one of the things I learned early on was when the director would ask for something and you'd kind of think about it and go, well, that's a good idea, but there might be some better ways to do it. But I always learned from seeing what other people did or didn't do was to get the director exactly what he wanted and then give him exactly what he needed because there was a difference there. Sometimes they just didn't know. They just had never done this type of work before. So you want to get him what he wants, so he's happy with that, and then start to give him stuff that he wasn't expecting. And I think that's a lot of it. That's a lot of what happened uh, with Michael Bay in the very beginning. I've been with him since the very beginning too. And he just knows that I'm going to get him stuff as wild as it could possibly be that he'll use. And And of course it's learning what the directors want. They're so different. But once you kind of get a handle on what they want, then you go out and start doing stuff, whether it's weird or not. And if you can keep producing, then they're going to keep calling you back.
0: Now... You've gone on to direct aerial units yourself. That's correct. Yeah,
1: I got to the point, I think I just finished Iron Eagle 2 that we did in Israel. And then number three was coming up and the producers, again, wanted to use me for the aerials, but they said, well, we need you to teach a director how to do this. And I kind of went, well, if I'm teaching a director, why don't I just do it since I already know how to? And they kind of went, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And so that was the first movie of doing Iron Eagle 3. And it went on from there, like with Pearl Harbor and a few other things of actually putting the whole thing together and uh, directing it and shooting it. Because in shooting it, I knew exactly how to do it. And it also became part of directing. It's like, I know what the editor is going to need for a cut here or there and how to get that material. So I've been lucky enough to have some of the directors go, yeah, fine. Let's have you do the whole
0: thing. When you worked on the 1986 Top Gun as a camera operator, where were you at in terms of your experience?
1: A fair amount of aerial stuff, but like I said, I would bounce back and forth from aerial to groundwork. And I had actually been an operator on a show, TV show called uh, Our Family Honor. And they went on hiatus at one point where they would go back to New York and they would not take the L.A. crew. It happened to be right at that period of time that Top Gun came up. And I was operating for a camera system that Continental Camera had at the time called Astrovision that went in Learjet and we'd been doing most of the commercials uh, all around the world at that point. So it was more that Paramount knew about the Astrovision and Clay Lacing flying than they did about me. I came along as the operator because I had more experience. And because of that, you know that's how I met Tony and everything and we, we went on from there. but he kept me on to do uh, a few bits and pieces on the ground, a lot of the stuff that we did on the mountaintop, I was involved as one of the four operators on that. And, uh, you know, we just basically hit it off for everything.
0: Now, they didn't have a dedicated aerial cinematographer on that film, correct?
1: No, essentially, I became it by default, if you will, because all the aerials that were done with the Lear, I did all of that. And then again, like I said, I, I stayed on the ground to learn what Tony had in mind for long lenses on the, on the uh, shooting from the mountaintop, which... If you analyze the first Top Gun, about 75% of all the aerials we actually did from the mountaintop. Because you can get stuff on a thousand millimeter lens that you just can't quite get when you're filming air to air. And I brought that forward to Joe Kaczynski saying, you have to do this on this movie. This is the difference it makes. And so we did. We spent almost a week on the the new Top Gun, just on a mountaintop, getting all the different shots that they needed.
0: What were... Some of the unique challenges that you and cinematographer uh, Jeffrey L. Kimball faced on that production, uh, given the state of filmmaking technology at the time.
1: One of the interesting things is that Claudio did mention it that he had talked to Jeffrey and was asking him why they had shot spherical, where Tony's uh, he, his only movie prior to that had been anamorphic. But Tony loved the two three five format, and of course, at the time, the only way to do that was anamorphic. And what happened is Tony had read an article that I had written part of, and I think it was for the AFC magazine, uh, obviously prior to Top Gun, and about this small camera that Continental Camera was marketing. It was 100 feet of uh, 35 millimeter film, but the camera was basically uh, horizontal rather than vertical, like an IMO camera. And Tony thought, well, maybe this would work better to fit inside the the cockpit. So early on, Again, when I had the time, I drove down to San Diego to Miramar with this camera to show Tony and Jeffrey, and they had a F-14 Tomcat. They were trying to see how they could get a camera and an anamorphic lens in the cockpit and and shoot the actual, uh, either the actor or the real pilot. Well, I don't know if you remember then and now, the, the, the widest anamorphic lens that PandaVision made was a 28 millimeter, and the thing weighed about 20 pounds. It was huge. And the close focus was like four and a half feet. So where the camera had to mount, it was going to be like 10 inches from the, from the pilot's face. So neither Tony nor Jeffrey could figure out, well, how are we going to make this work anamorphic? And I said, well, why don't you shoot this Super 35? And they looked at me, and neither one of them knew anything about Super 35, but I had just come off of a movie called Choke Canyon with Dante Spinotti. It was Dante's first movie in the United States, and he shot it Super 35. And that's where both of us learned what you could and couldn't do so we were shooting with full aperture gates but the uh, lens center and it was academy centering and we were having to make different prime lenses cover the entire format and so that's where i learned just what you could do with a small prime lens that could focus down to 10 inches and that's where i suggested that to them i said why don't you try that so that was the thing is tony you know ended up being able to shoot in two three five but it was in super 35 with spirit with spherical lenses and stuff and they always told me later on he hated the process of then trying to optically make the release prints because he wanted to release it nanomorphic and and uh, back then just the optical printing he wasn't real super happy with but that was kind of where it all came from uh, at one point in the learjet tony and jeffrey wanted to have a uh, tighter lens that they could shoot because the Astrovision was only a 50 millimeter lens it was a fixed prime lens built inside the periscope. So I mounted a camera and a 10 to 1 lens in the the right side of the Learjet, the forward most window, so you could actually get ahead of the wingtip. So there are a few shots in the movie that are shot through that 10 to 1. So we kind of went conventional with that to get some of that footage that they needed.
0: How has the evolution of digital technology and lenses and aerial camera support since then affected the way you approach your work? A
1: lot of it hasn't changed much at all. You know, I mean, basically the the
0: cameras that they came
1: out became the uh, the film choice, if you will, of different DPs. As you know, different DPs liked a Kodak, and they liked you know fifty two this or fifty two that or whatever and stuff. Now it came out. Well, I like the Venice camera, or I like the Red camera, or I like the uh, Airy products. So the cameras just have become kind of the film stock. Uh, the lenses. Uh, have, they'd started off kind of the same thing, but as the formats got larger now on these new digital cameras, the lens technology has changed quite a bit to be able to have like zoom lenses like I use a lot, but cover this larger format. I just finished a bunch of projects with the uh, ARI, the mini LF and it required a format that would cover that. And I had Dan Suzaki at Panavision build a special adapter lens for me that allowed me to use my, my go-to lens, which was a Fuji 25-300. to 300. Now I can continue to use that lens and cover the larger formats, either the Red Monstro 8K or the, uh, the Mini LF, or we just did a bunch of projects of the uh, Venison 6K. Keeping up with that technology, it's still kind of the same thing, except some of the lens technology has made it better because they've kept up with the newer technology of the digital cameras. As far as putting that inside of a housing that we use, the stabilized system, uh, if they're large enough to handle these large lenses and camera bodies, it's kind of the same thing. I'm still working with a stabilized camera system for helicopter. The one big change for uh, Top Gun is that the Shotover systems that we have used for years, the, the smaller version, the F1 uh, was never fast enough to go any faster than what a helicopter would do. But then shot over uh, through another company, they updated the motors in that with um, that could take the high torque needed to be able to pan and tilt while flying 350 knots. It's close to 400 miles an hour. So that was what then Kevin and I first started with developing the L39 with this camera on the nose and started the tests and, and trying to figure out exactly how we were going to do this. And so we started about the first third or half of the movie with the L39. Then we switched to the Phenom camera that I had been involved with during that time, which we were just building anyway, and it just timed out with um, Top Gun, that we could put this F1 on both the nose and the tail. So now we could run two cameras simultaneously, and that's where two operators came into uh, the need for two operators.
0: And now we're talking about Top Gun 2.
1: That's correct. So that's where the things have evolved from a Learjet with the periscope system in it to now hanging a a highly stabilized uh, camera system on the outside of the jet and still be able to do all this kind of work at that speed, it's really nice to be able to have like a 6-to-1 to to a 10-to-1 lens on something that's fully stabilized.
0: So when you're talking about AstroVision as a periscope system, it's not hanging outside of the jet like the shot-over systems are.
1: Right, yeah. Think in terms of a periscope of the submarine, just exactly like that. So they had one that went through the floor, one went through the, the top, and only about six inches of this little... Thing that was only two and a half inches in diameter stuck out with a little tiny window and behind that window was a mirror so the mirror was your tilt and rotating the entire system around for was your pan but it was bolted to the jet, so if the Lear moved the system moved and it was you know so there's no actual stabilization as smooth as the Lear was you could still see it moving around and again it was locked in at a 50 millimeter lens just because of the design of the optics whereas now like you said the shot is hung on the outside 360 degree pan, different degrees of tilt, far more than what the Astrovision could do, but with a fully stabilized camera and lens inside.
0: Would it be safe to assume that your approach has remained consistent over the years despite changes in technology?
1: That's pretty much correct. I mean, like you, I think one of your questions was about lighting and everything else. It's that you still have to gauge your schedule of the day for exactly the route that you're going to fly. And do you want this one backlit? Do you want it crosslit? And so that was a big determining factor on a lot of what Kevin and I did towards the uh, end of the movie in the Cascades where we were using the Phenom. It took so, It took a half an hour to fly there. Then we had about two hours on station and a half an hour to fly back. So during that time, we had to figure in the morning, which route are we going to do so it looks the best in the afternoon, switch it around and do a different route because you want that backlit or crosslit type of thing. But it's all, gauged on time of the day to make it look the best. And so you you schedule everything around that. So you have to schedule your briefings and meetings prior to that, enough time to get there, and then be there on station with the
0: correct look. What about speed? Uh, Now that you can fly faster with these more advanced camera platforms, has that made an impact at all on the types of shots you can get? The speed
1: doesn't really help. Although the Navy pilots, like with any of these pilots, they would love to be flying at 500 knots, but we can't do that. So even with the back days of the Learjet, the Learjet was limited to about 300 knots, and either the L-39 or the Phenom is limited to about 300 to 350. So the problem has always been that if you're doing the same speed as the other jets, you just don't, you know, you don't get the sensation of actual speed. That's why the, uh, the lenses on uh, fixed cameras on tripods on the mountaintop, now you've got a 1,000-millimeter lens, and the guys actually are doing 500 knots you know, towards you, away from you, side by side, whatever type of thing, that's where the speed is built up. The thing that was with us is that now we could shoot simultaneously with two cameras, one getting a very wide version, one getting a very tight version at the same time. And with the stability of, this, of the system itself, you, you weren't worried about vibration or anything like that. You could stay with it. And so that, that would start to punch the scenes up because you could get the, that tighter lens really makes the difference.
0: What was the nature of your collaboration with aerial cinematographer Michael Fitzmaurice and uh, aerial coordinator Kevin LaRosa Jr.?
1: Yeah, well, Kevin and I started the movie. Basically, I think like we had discussed is I was contacted by Jerry Bruckheimer to come in first, and that was nice to have that happen. And then as we started putting the team together, Kevin came in as the pilot for the L-39, but then we started working together on the tests and, you know, how to do this and all this stuff. And so we, we got probably a third of the way into the movie. And then as it was looking like we needed extra help, if I was doing something on the ground and Kevin needed to still be in the helicopter doing things, then Michael came in. And so it was then it just became, you know, the aerial team, if you will. Uh, so you know, towards the end of the movie, then that was what was happening. I would be on the mountaintop for a week. Uh, Kevin and Michael would be in the helicopter doing other stuff. Uh, when it came to the Phenom thing, it worked out beautifully because Michael's an amazing cameraman and, and has the skill that I could see was equal to what I was doing, if not better. So I had no problem having Michael there knowing he could get something without me saying anything. He was learning from me just simply that I've I've had so much time doing this. I could say, well, we need to do this and here's why. Okay, so we would. But again, being up in the aircraft at the same time, two different camera setups, two different lenses setups. Um, we were getting great stuff, and Kevin was flying, so it was all the team together, you know, doing this.
0: I read in our coverage of the original Top Gun something about the use of this uh, cine sextant system, a multi-camera turret that was used to track missile and weapon systems into outer space. How did that work, and what other techniques did you use to film the fighter jets in action from the ground?
1: Well, the the machine that was used on the on the first one, it was made by Photosonics. It was a huge deal. It was about 12, I think it weighed 12,000 pounds. So they could never get it to the top of the mountain where we were. It had to actually be based at the bottom of the mountain as close as they could actually drive it and get it off of the trailer. Um, and it was developed during the, uh, basically all the space um, launches and stuff where an operator sat in this thing and the whole unit panned or tilted with him in it. And he had like a ring sight in front of him. And so as long as he kept the uh, target inside of that thing with the, he had a trackball that, pan and tilted the entire thing with, well, while he was sitting in it, but they would mount like up to six cameras, three on each side with thousand millimeter lenses, stuff like that with 16 millimeter. Tony on this one, of course, had them uh, put together 35 millimeter cameras and the lenses and stuff. But the problem with it, I don't think there was a single frame of it used in the movie is that the tracker was basically a guy from Photosonics who's capable of actually tracking. He had no concept of the actual frame because all he was seeing was just a little sight, and so as long as he kept the jet in there, he was going to have a shot. But not exactly, you know, he wasn't letting them in, he wasn't letting them out. You know, he wasn't. You know, it just didn't have the same feel as a camera operator that was actually looking through an eyepiece and seeing what the format of the of the lens was. Um, So that wasn't going to work for us. And I had told Joe in the beginning, it needs to be four operators, let's say, and different uh, size lenses on a mountaintop. And so what I'd learned from Tony on that particular day back in 1985 was how to set up some kind of a site to find a speck in the sky. And if you're on a thousand mil lens, how do you find that jet? And these guys were taking coat hangers and simply bending them and taping them up on the lens. And so you'd have one by the eyepiece, that gave you just a little ring that you could see through, and another one that was further down the lens that you lined up and you just bent the wires until they lined up on something that you were looking at out at an infinity. So you look at your eyepiece through the right eye, put the crosshairs on a target, bend these things until your little zeros lined up on that same exact target. So now, as long as you didn't move the eyepiece, every time you look through your left eye, you could swing it onto a target quite rapidly, close your left eye, open your right eye, and you would see the jet right there in your frame. So that was the thing is I went to Keslo when they were prepping for all that ground stuff. And I said, I need something like this, but it has to be something simple. And they actually, uh, I think it was part of what Dan Ming had done is he had the guys uh, printed up on the 3d printers and they made little tiny sights with a hole in it and they could mount it on just regular arms and stuff that we could clamp near the eyepiece, lock it in position, and then put the other one further up and lock it in position after you've moved it. And once they lined up, then your your whatever you saw through the eyepiece was always or through that sight was always going to be in the center of your eyepiece, and then that's how the other myself and the other three operators used to find the uh, targets as they were coming at us.
0: From a photographic perspective, what factors do you find yourself dealing with in the air that you might not need to consider on the ground?
1: Yeah, well, a lot of that comes down to like on the ground you're kind of dealing with X and Y, you're panning or you're tilting and you're not moving. You're standing there with the tripod and everything. Once you get in the air, now you're dealing with the Z axis where you're going up and down, your subject is going up and down, you're moving around in, you know, in circles, different things like that. So you have to you know, factor that in. And a lot of that just comes down to the feel of it. You can feel but through the seat of your pants, what your aircraft is doing. and You kind of tell, oh, I'm about to go up. I need to tilt down, uh, you know, vice versa and stuff. But a, a lot of it is that third axis that is added in, just being able to deal with it. And a lot of it too is, is uh, tracking stuff. If you're, you're locked in a cockpit of this aircraft and it's somewhere out there and the pilot might look out the window and goes, oh, he's over there at nine o'clock. Well, you swing the camera over there and you're kind of swooping around again. Now you're trying to look through a long lens and you don't have that little peep sight that you had when you were on the ground. So you have to learn how to maybe snap the lens out wide or find it and zoom right in right, right away. Uh, yeah, just little things like that. It's just the, the Z axis. And, uh, you know, learning how to find your target, things like that.
0: There's a line in the film, in Top Gun 2, about the Navy replacing their human pilots with unmanned drones. Given the proliferation of drone photography over the past several years, is there a concern that the same fate awaits aerial cinematographers?
1: No, not really. And I know kind of what you're talking about when they're referring to that is an unmanned fighter, if you will, they could fly into combat and now you're not putting a human being at risk. Um, that's one thing. But the type of stuff that we run into, and we, I guess it started about, let's say, seven years ago when drones were first coming into existence. And that's I was getting that question all the time. But then as we found out that the drones are so limited to what they can do, it wasn't affecting our side of the business at all. Um, you know, we just do so much stuff where we take off from an airport and we go someplace and we film and then we go, well, it's better a mile over there. So you go over there and you film and you do this and you do that. But you're covering distances and things that a drone just can't do. A drone you kind of have to set up here and you can't fly more than a certain distance. And if you want to get a different shot, you got to pack everything up and move and go someplace else and try to shoot. So I think people have really started to discover Uh, There's great shots you can get with the drone, but it kind of starts where a crane leaves off and it ends where a helicopter starts. Now, some of these things are getting pretty wild now. Um, When we did ambulance with Michael Bay, he was using this guy that's a, a drone racer. And so he had this drone with a camera bolted to it. And they were hauling ass up and down the streets and over cars and through buildings and this. And they got some amazing stuff. And there's just no other way you could have ever have done that. So it was the piece of equipment to use for that, you know, at that time. And uh, they have another gentleman on uh, Fast 10 that is kind of doing the same thing. So he's getting these amazing little shots, Um, but it's stuff that we could never do, but he can't do what we do. And so, you know, there, there's just the crossover just isn't there, just another piece of equipment. And I think now that so much time has gone by, some of the uh, so many uh, different companies that were out there are all long gone because they just couldn't keep up with either the technology or what was needed. You know, you got these guys, they would make skateboard movies and stuff, but had no concept of real movie making. And so, you know, some guys, they just didn't they just couldn't make it. They couldn't work with the directors and stuff, but some of these new guys are are amazing. It's just the right piece of equipment to use in the right spot.
0: Is there anything we haven't discussed that you would like the audience to know about your work on this film?
1: Well, I think it just, I I saw that, was just kind of thinking about it. I think it was just really nice that having put nearly 50 years into this business of having like Jerry Bruckheimer, give me a call and say, you know, Hey, we're going to do this other top gun. I had been in meetings and discussions with Tony Scott before we lost him. And, uh, you know, so I was all set to do the movie with him. Then everything went down. And then when it, with the coming back, it was just wonderful to hear, get that conversation going with uh, Jerry. Then he asked about Joe and I said, well, I've done the last two movies with Joe. So there was already a good collaboration about to start there. It was just nice to have been thought of, I guess, um, you know, after 34 years from one to the other, to be included in it, to be able to, to do it. I mean, we spent nearly a year in testing and then actually doing the show, um, you know, waited, uh, you know, for the, whole, the thing to come out, I guess, in June of 2020. Then COVID hit and everything. It's like, oh, well, now what? You know, type of thing. But the whole experience was amazing. It was great just working with everybody you know, the longevity of the whole thing. It was just a great, great experience, which that's part of the whole thing is each show's different. Uh, you know, you put your heart and soul into it. I think that's part, again, goes back to that question of like, you know, why do you keep working? It's like, you know, you just love what you're doing. And, and as long as people know that, you know, you're going to keep getting the call back. So that was the thing. I just got that call back after all that time.
0: Do you think after all this time, you have a few more films in you?
1: You know, this is my 50th year in the industry. It's been wonderful, I don't know. That's the thing is, is I, I have no reason to retire. The family's great, so they have no problem with that either. They, as long as the, the phone keeps ringing, it's like, if it's an interesting project, okay, you know, I don't have to do it if I don't want to type of thing. Uh, we'll see. It's, a, it's another sequel that you'll have to
0: write about. <laughs> All right, well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> that was David Noel ASC talking about his work on the film Top Gun Maverick. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. Please subscribe to the show, share it with your friends, and follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can visit us at theasc.com for more content on the art and craft of cinematography. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap.